It's time to hit the switch on your energy supply. Make the switch to SSE Airtricity right now, and not only will you be joining Ireland's largest green energy provider, you'll also save 33% on electricity and gas. Yes, 33%. Go to sseairtricity.com today and get your 33% discount exclusively online. SSE Airtricity. This is Generation Green. EAB 2168 euro and 23 cent. Offer online only from the 10th of the 1st, 22. Rates valid from the 1st of the 5th, 22. Subject to change. One year standard unit rate for new home gas and electricity customers and direct debit and EBIL. For details of EAB, T's and C's, rates, exit fee, standing charge, and green energy claims, see sseairtricity.com. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill. A look back at the week on News Talk. So are you doing a bit of shopping yourself? I am, yeah. I'm in town today to get a few bits. Just dying to get out and start spending and getting into shops and a bit of normality. So yeah, I think I think people will start spending more. I mean, we've been saving the last year. Anyone lucky enough to be still employed and getting paid has been saving the last year. So there's money been built up. So yeah, I'll definitely be looking forward to spending it. I'm a big fan of online shopping, so I'm kind of been doing it anyway. But yeah, absolutely. I can see people, the trail of going to a shop is exciting. So yeah, definitely. I have two kids, so I buy baby clothes a lot. <laughs> you see it happening? Not really, no, no one thinks so. I think people are cautious going to be with what's happened, you know? Like even going now, pubs say bars open and I wouldn't be the first to run into one, you know? So I don't think, I think a lot of people, well my age group probably be more cautious. Hi, I'm David from Louis Copeland's. We have been gangbusters now. We've re- I've never seen it as busy in all the time that I've worked in Louis Copeland's. People are spoiling themselves now. We've been in lockdown for a long time and I think pe- people are treating themselves now as we enter into a, a new beginning. And do you see this continuing now for the rest of the year? People treating themselves with retail therapy? Well, I certainly hope so, that's for sure. So do you see it? Is there going to be a boom this year? I think so, yes. I think lots of people will be out shopping. I'm treating myself. I'm after buying a dress and some jewellery. Lovely, lovely. Yes. Are you going to spend more on certain items compared to others? Would you have bought a dress or jewellery pre-COVID on a Thursday morning? No, 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 not I would not, no. So you need to treat yourself, you deserve it. You have it. to, yes, you have to. David McCormick, uh, director in Weir and Sons Jewelers. Business has been very good, very buoyant. For the first six, eight weeks, we were very good. But there is a sense that things have moved back a bit now. And what noticeable changes have you seen? Are people going for the more luxurious items? Probably two things that you would immediately notice. Probably that there is a higher conversion rate in terms of people who come in. They come in with a desire to spend and they make a decision and they do spend. And also what the amount they're spending has probably gone up significantly. As far as the boom will come, we'll just get the same thing again. We'll get a year and a half, two years, and then we'll go into recession. This is Ireland all over. And it's a great little country and we're always complaining. Do you think people will start treating themselves a bit more now with restrictions? I think people are treating themselves very well. Anyway, are spoiled. I was born in 1966, grew up on a small farm. And you see the, the way young people have it now. It's a holiday. There's no concept at all that they're any day, as my father used to say. Josh Crosby reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, a quick one for you. Do you believe in aliens, flying stuff and all that jazz? Well, on Monday, Stephanie Preisner was joined by one very interesting lady who takes an open mind. Take a listen to this. I'm in a difficult position here where I'm sort of neutral to negative on most things and would be described as a cynic. And when things Mm -hmm. move away from, you know, something that I can easily roll my eyes at into something that is more legitimate. It's kind of like the cognitive dissonance of having to update my information is difficult, you know. Um, Absolutely. That's happening to a lot of people. 
It is. A lot of people. I have some And text- in America, it's been going on for about three years now, or three or four. So people have sort of gradually been acclimating to this. But I think this report kicks it up a notch. It I mean, definitely yeah, kicks it up to... a notch, a notch yeah, in terms of like the gravitas and the legitimacy of the places that are even speaking about it and publishing it. Um, I have some I texts right. here from yeah. uh, people who are listening. Um, mm-hmm. UFOs. So there were also UAPs slash UFOs seen coming from underwater. Could they be advanced species who existed before our species and the Ice Age? Connor in Dublin. Wow, what a fascinating thought, right? We can speculate about any possibility because he's absolutely right. There are there there are cases in which the objects have been seen coming out of the water and going into the water. In fact, there was a photo, a Navy photograph, Navy video that was leaked maybe a month ago that shows a, an object going into the water. And maybe um, maybe Connor was that his name? Yeah. Um, maybe he saw that. But but it's a very interesting speculation. I mean, there are people that speculate that perhaps these are from our planet somehow. And maybe they would be dwelling deep under the ocean in some obscure place that we've never been to. So that's that's an option. It's on everything's on the table at this point. Kind of hurts my head. What percentage of these are happening in the USA? Well, it's hard to know because, of course, we don't know what's not being reported around the world. And of course, some countries have government agencies in which they welcome reports and they study them. And those countries you're going to hear more from them because they, people have a place to go to report their sightings in countries where that's not the case. You know, people tend to just talk about them or the, or they might be taboo. It's just so different in every country, but this is definitely a worldwide phenomenon because it's been, it's, this has been monitored since the late 1940s and it has been observed all over the world in terms of now where the most sightings are. It's just impossible to say uh, it just depends on how much a country is involved with, with monitoring them. Because there is an argument, there's an argument coming in here from one another listener saying, I think that UFOs are essentially a cover for secret experiments, probably by the military. Aliens make no sense. Why would they travel billions, if not trillions of kilometers to visit people in the middle of nowhere in the USA? Research and technology is way ahead of what we see. This is a great cover, Paddy. And that's a very, very good point. I mean, Patty's very smart. And, you know, that's been that has been on the table as a possibility. It's just that the report indica- has said that they tried to confirm that this was secret U- U.S. technology and they were not able to. So the report is basically saying, and other officials have actually gone on the record in the United States and said these are not ours. I mean, these are senators and other officials with, with clearances who have access to classified information. So I, you know, unless they're all part of some vast conspiracy to cover up the technology, I, I just don't believe that that's the case. But, um, you know, everything's on the table, as I said. I just uh, think it's highly unlikely that they would all agree to lie about something like that. Yeah, or that they <laughs> that they have the capacity to orchestrate and, something and like that. Exactly. And you have to remember, too, that these sightings go back, to, let's say, to the 1950s. And the same technology was demonstrated then as is demonstrated now. And that's really an important point, because the chances that we or any other country had this technology that long ago is extremely small and the sightings the behaviors have been consistent throughout the decades that's a really good so, point you know, you'd actually have to be able to, yeah it's, it's quite easy to say oh it's just a drone but we didn't have drones back when these were initially seen and um, we didn't have drones we didn't have a lot of what we have today yeah. <laughs> we didn't have you know so that's a really really important factor that everybody has to remember and i think the people in the task force their their cases only went back to 2004 i don't think they're in the task force in america i don't think they're looking at the vast reams of data that that were gathered be prior to that. 
And it's just, you know, these things are going to become more of the of the dialogue and have to be addressed, these points like that. And it's going to be interesting to see how it all unfolds. But that's an important one. What an interesting take. Journalist and writer Leslie Keane from Moncrief. On Thursday, Pat Kenny spoke to Paul Harrison about his long and challenging career in child protection services. You talk about uh, the the decisions that you would make in the early days, which was, you know, you leave the child in the the care of the parents or you put the child into residential care or foster care. Very simple. But you're bearing in mind nowadays and there are, uh, you know, a suite of options available to try and support the parents at home with the children. But you know that by taking the children away, you may save them from certain physical or other abuse but also by taking the child away, psychologically, they may be damaged for the rest of their lives. That's a very difficult call to make. It is a difficult call, Pat. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And, and one of the things I learned after, I suppose, a decade or so of the work uh, was this, that um, it's not my job to make a child happy, uh, but it is my job to make a child safe. And if, if using that yardstick, um, some child, children may be miserable, but if, if they're adequately protected by their parents, even if they don't have a, um, a nice, shall we say, childhood, if, if they are, are safe, um, it's always best to leave the child where they are because no matter how well you do it, it does involve separation and loss. And um, not only for the child, but obviously particularly for the child, but for many other people uh, who have a relationship with that child, um, you know, it, it has a lasting effect. So it's not something one does lightly. Now, uh, there is a, a story in the book and it, it's um, the title of the chapter is Am I Going to Heaven? But it's a very moving story of, of Joan, the mother, and Millie, the child. And Joan has obviously a very serious psychiatric disorder which is maintained in the outpatients initially and Millie can live happily, well, steadily with her mother at any rate. But it comes to a point where Millie has to be removed to a place of safety. And thats it's a heartbreaking story, but kind of with a happy ending. It had a good outcome. It, 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 was, a, it was a tricky one in, in that um, it, it became necessary to, to admit Millie on foot of a court order, and at the same time, her mother was being committed to hospital. So it was um, uh, the operation involved the Gardaí backing us up uh, in removing the child and parked down the road uh, was the psychiatric service uh, to take the mother into their care. Uh, and at the same time, it was traumatic uh, for us all, uh, most of all the child, in the sense that um, we had to prize the child uh, uh, off the mother. And uh, at one stage, she locked herself in, to- in, in the toilet uh, of, the, of a boarding house where she was staying. And uh, the Gardaí broke through the door with a lump hammer. Uh, and so the child is obviously, you know, witnessing all this trauma. And uh, we literally had to pluck her from her mother and drive her away. It was very difficult. And then um, there was no possibility of preparing her for that. Normally, you would um, spend a long time um, explaining to a child what was happening and all the rest of it. But we were doing this on the hoof uh, while she was in the back of the car. We were trying to explain that she was going to a family where, who were very nice, that there was a dog, you know, explaining the house with the garden and all the rest of it. And then she whispered to me, uh, am I going to heaven and um, it, it was a very touching thing trying to um, 
assist her to settle in. I, I left her for the night and I, I gave her some possessions of mine to, to mind uh, and uh, telling her that I'd be back in the morning to, to collect them. It was just a way of um, making that connection and she knew I'd be back. And when I called the following day, she was sitting up having her breakfast and her teddy was was uh, sitting beside a, a bowl of coca pops and she, she looked great. And um, she said to me, um, if my ma comes to collect me, is it OK if I ask her, can I stay for a while? And it, yeah. it was very touching because, I mean, she, she was loyal to her mum, but, but she was enjoying the warm house and the bath and the food and uh, the things that most kids take for granted. Uh, and she knew she was onto a good thing, uh, that if the best of both worlds, it, but it would be if she could enjoy the foster placement a bit longer, but still have that loyalty to her mum. Some touching reflections there from social worker Paul Harrison from The Pat Kenny Show. Uh, yep. Just to clarify for people who are listening, there are two series. There is the Sky Jim uh, Sheridan series, which you are involved with, called Murder at the Cottage. And then there is the Netflix series, which uh, starts streaming today, Sophie, A Murder in West Cork. Now, you said, and I'm quoting, that you expected the Netflix series to be a, a poisonous propaganda which would further demonise you. And you have now also said that that has proved to be true. If you thought that and if you knew that, why did you get involved with it in the first place? The reason I and I was sort of not tricked into getting involved in the, the Netflix production by Lightbox Entertainments, but back in 2017 in May, two people who had been dealing with it in connection with another matter uh, who were making a podcast series came over to Ireland on behalf of Lightbox and Simon Chin and said, we want to do, we'd like to do an interview with you as a tease for a Netflix production. And I rather reluctantly agreed to talk to them. I pointed out the fact that I was contractually uh, connected to Jim Sheridan. Why would you help promote a rival series? Well, the point about this was that I was never going to cooperate fully with a Netflix production, which I didn't. So I gave a, a brief interview to them. Now, I subsequently... I signed a release form, and there was another second release form that had to be signed by the landowner of the, where the interview was conducted, my, my former partner, Jules Thomas. And she refused to sign that, so I wrote to Simon Chin uh, and emailed him saying that they had no permission to use the interview that they had done with me on the prairie. Okay, by the way, did you receive a fee from Netflix for that? No, no. Okay, no. fine. Um, no, uh, no um, your thoughts on the Netflix series and how you've been portrayed. Well, you said I mean, it was going to be poisonous propaganda and you feel now that that, that is justified and it does well, further demonise you. I mean, from what I've seen of it and I've seen clips and from it, yes, I, unfortunately, I think it is. I think it's a piece of self-serving, demonising propaganda. The, the series that you're involved with... Um, with Jim Sheridan, uh, people who are, are, don't have a favourable view of you would say that they'd make the same, level the same charges at, at you and Jim, that this is your point of view, it's your narrative, and obviously it's going to show you in a better light. Well, I mean, I think the thing about the Jim doc was that Jim undertook to make an, uh, an objective um, uh, in the, a documentary. And from all I can see from the Netflix production, the there's very little objectivity in it. It's written from a sort of biased slant. Or, and, I mean, I, I wrote to Netflix on Saturday 
pointing out the fact I didn't want the interview that Jennifer Ford had uh, recorded as a, a tease for the Netflix included in it. Okay, and are you going to uh, proceed with legal action against them then, so? Uh, what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to refer it to my um, my legal people, and should they think that there is a case, they'll advise me on that. You've been accused of a lot of things with regard to this, right? You've been cleared in Irish courts, obviously found guilty in absentia in French courts, but, but the, a, a constant or, or reoccurring charge that is levelled at you is that you are a narcissist and that despite the horrific nature of this case, that, that somehow or another that you enjoy the notoriety and attention that it has brought to you. And I suppose the question is, have you brought a lot of this on yourself? Um, no. I, well, OK, to answer that in a narcissist. No, I'm not a narcissist. A narcissist comes from the Greek myth of narcissist who falls in love with his own reflection. In a, I have to look at my ageing, ugly mug every morning in the mirror And I can tell you, I'm not a narcissist. One of the many online raffle operators that have recently cropped up, giving people the chance to win luxury items for 20 to 50 euro. With many of the competitions with catchy names promoting their raffles on sites such as Facebook and Instagram, I asked the social media giant what the rules are surrounding this type of gambling. Facebook says ads that promote online gambling and gaming where anything of monetary value is required to play are only allowed with its prior written permission. It also says ads may not be targeted to people under 18 years of age. So with some raffle promoters not seeking permission from Facebook and with several of these competitions appearing on the news feeds of under 18s, I wanted to find out are any actions being taken against rogue operators and what laws cover this area. I met with Laura Fannin, who is a partner in the commercial and business team at Hayes Solicitors. There is a new exemption under the 2019 Gaming Lotteries Act for marketing promotions, where if you are running a lottery in conjunction with the marketing or sale of a product and your prizes are no more than €2,500, then it'll be exempt and doesn't need any lottery licence and you can run it without doing anything further. Alternatively, you can get a permit. So a permit is where you apply to your local guard station and get a permit for the lottery. And essentially under the permit, the prizes can't be more than €5,000. The cost of a ticket to the lottery can't be more than €10. And if you're running it for a charitable purpose, you can't retain more than 5% of the proceeds of the lottery. But where you have prize values over €5,000, the only option open to you is to get a lottery licence. But then in terms of kind of commercial promotions, what you see happening is a promoter will team up with the charity and the charity will make the application in its name to the district court. And would there be grey areas now in the Act that are kind of abused? or Yeah. The lottery element of the Act just hasn't been meaningfully enforced in any way. So you do see an awful lot of commercial promotions, for example, where they're run without the benefit of a lottery licence quite widely and no action has ever been taken. So you see very little prosecutions under this Act. You just haven't really seen any uptake in enforcement in it. So a lot of people do run what are deemed to be lotteries without any permit, without any lottery licence. And it's not something that the guards seem to be prosecuting at the moment anyway. And there's no idea of how many of these are running a week or how many under different names no, and the money no. that... and you'll see a lot of them on Facebook and different social media platforms and online and... With the absence of the gambling regulator, like, who does it fall to? With the guards, is it? The guards, yeah. So there isn't a gambling regulator as such, so, you know, it's the guards that would prosecute that offence. 
But I mean, I think that going back really to first principles, the Gaming and Lotteries Act, it probably never was drafted with commercial promotions like that in mind. Laura Fannin there from Hayes Solicitors. Now it's clear as I scroll through different sites that many of these raffles are targeting as many customers as possible with promotions such as early bird special rates and reminders not to miss your last chance to enter. I spoke with addiction counsellor Barry Grant from Extern Problem Gambling to find out if this is an area of concern. Well, this is quite a new thing. Um, so we're really only seeing the tip of the iceberg because it's such early days with these things. But we'd have concerns about it because there's zero regulation there, the zero protections for customers. And it has all of the dynamics of your standard forms of gambling but it's in an online forum and these things are very enticing. You know, once you've signed up for one of these things, the algorithm will kick in as well. So if you've signed up for one, you're going to see a lot of ads for lots of other ones. So there would be a lot of factors there that would concern me. But you know, you'd see people who would buy hundreds and hundreds of euros of these tickets because quite often what happens, just like any other form of gambling, you have an early big win. So let's say you do your first raffle, you put in a tenner, next thing you know, you've got a car. But for a certain amount of people, they go, they'll go, well, I can do that again. This is easy. I'll just up my stake. I'll buy more tickets and I'll win more stuff. And then that addictive process can kick in. There would be questions maybe about, you know, where the prizes are coming from. Certain types of gambling are wide open to money laundering. Like there would be a lot of issues there that would require a bit of regulation around them. And one of the things that the gambling operators, whether it's the lottery or the bookies, would all do pretty much across the board is offer people the opportunity to self-exclude. There doesn't seem to be an opportunity to do this with these raffles. So that would concern me as well, because that level of what you would call player protection just isn't there. Barry Grant from Extern Problem Gambling there, pointing out the dangers of having such access to these forms of gambling online. With more and more of these raffles popping up, I wanted to see, are many people aware of them or have they given it a go themselves? My friends do, but I actually wouldn't play them too much. One of my friends, he won a, like, a BMW white Jeep from England off of one of them raffles. That was the biggest prize I've ever seen. And when you see someone winning such a, a good prize, you wouldn't be tempted yourself? No, you would. It would tempt you a lot. And it's, to be honest, I'm like the only one out of my friend group that wouldn't enter them. I just wouldn't trust them. No, I just think they're like scams or something. And I've like never heard of anyone who's won anything. I haven't entered them myself, but my girlfriend does them a lot, I think, for the free houses and this kind of thing. So they seem like harmless fun. No, no, just what I see, advertised, and I think it's all a scam, just to get people sucked in. So nobody ever wins that. So these online raffles, have you entered one before? I have, yeah, yeah, I have. I haven't won anything from it, though, but we try our luck with it anyway, you know. There's so many people entering it, for the, you would never have a chance, really, like, but, yeah. And would you know of anyone now that's won something off them? I have, actually. I know some people that won on Facebook competitions with... Uh, those uh, car competitions. Would you ever enter one or if you saw, if you saw someone winning a nice car would you like to enter? I entered myself but I wasn't successful anyway. One of my neighbours actually won from the competition, the crowd that I entered in. One of my neighbours won. And when you see people winning then for five euro or ten euro it yeah. kind of entices you're you to enter inclined. again? Yeah, you're way more inclined to enter. I'm kind of going, oh I might as well. Would you ever enter one or do you know anyone that's ever won anything? Yeah, two of my friends. One of them won two cars and then the okay. other one won a bundle with... Uh, 
a full, an iPhone and AirPods. I've entered one, like I wouldn't be one to gamble or anything like so. Do you think, are they harmless fun or should they be a bit more control on social media? I think that they're kind of dangerous because you could get very addicted to them. It's harmless like entering once a week or something. There's some that are like 20 euro and I think that's like a bit much if you're entering one of them a day, like it's, I don't think it's great. Josh Crosby reporting for the Pat Kenny Show. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. One thing for sure is that this is not just a problem in tip. A closed down shop or a boarded up building is an all too familiar sight in many streets across Ireland. I'm now on my way to Thurless to meet with independent councillor Jim Ryan to find out what are some of the reasons behind these houses lying idle. Across the county of Tipperary we have approximately 3,000 vacant homes which is a huge number. Now for a county that's crying out for housing it's really a sin to see so many houses lying vacant which could be used for social housing or other for rental purposes. So it's a huge concern. It's an issue that's been raised at county council meetings down through the years but the matter seems to be getting worse and we have schemes there to try and encourage landlords to rent out their houses but unfortunately they've failed miserably. The banks need to play a better role here. There's a lot of houses, fantastic houses like the one we have here today that we're standing in front of that have been repossessed by the banks. They've left these houses idle for a number of years. The houses have become vandalised. There's a lot of antisocial behaviour, illegal dumping. They've become overgrown. And there's a lot of vermin in, in, the, in the area as well. And we cannot contact the banks. And that's something the government needs to act on. And in fairness to the County Council, they agreed with me it is an issue. And they agreed that it is the government that should be doing more to make the banks more responsible for vacant properties that they own. As you said, up to 3,000 vacant houses. We're standing outside one now in the outskirts of Thurless. What are some of the reasons behind them lying empty? This house here that we're standing in front of, a fantastic house in a fantastic housing estate here in Turles and the problem is the bank owners there's not even a for sale sign up here on it other reasons would be that people have died off it could be tax reasons a lot of people have been left properties there are substantial inheritance tax bills to be paid as, as a result of it and they just don't have the money to pay the tax man and then to pay for the house to be renovated so that's another issue that needs to be looked at as well but look there's various reasons these houses need to be brought back into our housing stock we can't have thousands of people on our waiting list here in Tipperary and thousands of houses being left vacant it just doesn't make any sense Councillor Jim Ryan there who showed me around Thurless and pointed out some derelict buildings which are attracting anti-social behaviour and in some cases have become dumping grounds for waste. While in Thurless I met with Mark O'Neill who's the chairperson of the Cashlawn Court Residents Association. It's very frustrating, it's a lovely quiet estate and it's a very popular high demand area and it just takes the whole estate down and detracts from it and it's only encouraging vandalism and unwanted aspects moving into it. The actual gardens and all that are very badly maintained, not being kept, and it's just encouraging mice and rats, and you don't need that either. Extra hassle. So what do you want to see being done now from the local authorities to improve the situation? It's like what everyone in the country wants, because there's so many homeless, like, get them a house. Like, there's not a lot of work needs to be done to this house. Get it sold or get it rented out. Mark O'Neill from the Cash Lawn Court Residents Association. Now it's not just the one area where vacant dwellings are leading to problems. I asked people throughout Thurless and Nina were they aware of many empty homes. There is, there's actually a few up where I live and you know with all the people that are looking for houses it's 
it's awful to see them there. One of them has gone very wild and overgrown. The owner of the house lives in the UK. Basically, he's just left there, rotting away. And do you feel it kind of brings down your own area then? It does, even though it's up the opposite end of the, the road from me, but yeah, it does. You're local in Thurles, are you? I'm local here, yeah. I live here all my life, yeah. And how frustrating is it now when you see oh, homes boarded up? Oh, it's desperate to see everything boarded up. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's a shame. There's so many people looking for houses. I mean, you see houses boarded up. It's just not fair. They can be a nice store when they're not looked after, like, you know. Are you local to Nina yourself? Oh, I am, yeah. There are a good show around, they're right, you know. It is disappointing. Sure, same all over the country. I am local, yeah. As uh, it is, because there's loads of people crying out there for good homes, and it's an awful pity not to let people avail of them and let people in who needs them. And, an, and it doesn't look right at the town either. It's, you know, when you drive into the town and see everywhere boarded up, it's not very pretty or it's not very nice to see. Like they're going to the border, doing up the whole square and making it nice and aesthetic looking. But when you see boarded up buildings, it's not. It kind of takes the whole look off the place. And is it frustrating with the demand on housing? It is, yeah. Government should take them over and do them up and put people into them. Josh Crosby reporting for The Heart Shoulder. On Saturday, Keith Woods joined John Duggan on Off The Ball. Just about the Lions itself, Keith, as a concept, does it live up to the folklore, the history? You were, you were there, you wore the T-shirt, you wore the red jersey. Yeah, it's funny, The um, partly because it gets and we're doing it now, but it gets overly um, talked up at different times. But it's at a perfect time of the year for rugby when there isn't any other rugby on, really, apart from today. Um, But for the next couple of months, there's no rugby on, and it takes over everybody also because it's only every four years. Um, But it's the pinnacle in terms of performance that you can go at, that you're playing with the best players that are on these islands. So for that, it absolutely lights it up. The historical context to it is um, is pretty fantastic as well. There are so um, Andy's talking about ninety seven, um, but I grew up on the ninety four Lions tour um, and what that meant for for the Lions to go undefeated down there on the on the whole tour. They they drew the last tour match, um, the last test, so they won three tests. So. Um, and I, in my house, it was a part and parcel of kind of growing up. My dad had played the Lions in 1959. He toured um, Australia and New Zealand in 59. So, yeah, I think it did live up to it. Um, I remember the first day walking into the team room and I was 25. Um, I was captain of Ireland, but I was a young fellow. And um, I had worked very hard to get there. And suddenly you walk into the room and you look around the other people in the room and you've played against them, like Ian Evans and Martin Johnson, Deladio, and you know them and you've played, uh, you know, there still is an aura about these guys that probably doesn't exist anymore because um, the European Cup, Heineken Cup was only just starting and around that time there wasn't a huge amount of matches. I got to know some of them by playing in the in the Premiership for in that season, but I still didn't really know them all. And you walk in and you're just thinking, "Can I cut the mustard in this place?" You know, I don't want to let myself down. I don't want to let Ireland down. I don't want to to let my family down. You know, you end up with all these huge weights that sit on your shoulder, and all you want to do is get a chance to go and play a game. So. That's why I think this match, this test match is very tough because it's very hard to play a test match um, as a scratch side. 
you normally have three or four weeks together before you do that and you've played a few matches and you've seen combinations and it makes this game an anomaly for a Lions tour and I'm also a bit of an old traditionalist and I think we're we're um, we're chipping away at the traditions uh, over time and I think we probably have to it just doesn't uh, doesn't take away from the fact it kind of upsets me a little but playing at home is an unusual place for the Lions it's the touring side um, but if you put all those in together and Andy mentioned at the start at the top of the programme, he mentioned the Jason Leonard handing out the jerseys and there being quietness in the room. It is absolutely terrifying when you get your first jersey, even if it isn't for a test, um, because you now know you have to fill it. And that is, I, I don't know, I, I've, I had it on, on two tours and I can tell you that for the first match of the second tour that I went on, it was as nerve-wracking, if not more nerve-wracking. I mean, there's an interesting and almost devastating responsibility to the jersey. And I, so I think that makes it pretty fantastic and special. So is it Ian McGeekin or Graham Henry who just hands it out to you in the dressing room? Is there a ceremony around it, uh, Keith? Uh, there is a ceremony at times, not always. Um, maybe not before the first uh, tour match, but um, we had, I can tell you that... Um, I think it was Frank Cotton handed them out in 97. Um, in 2001, we had Willie John McBride handed out the jerseys. And I remember having a conversation with him beforehand. And I know Willie pretty well. And um, uh, in his unbelievably, typically um, blunt fashion, he said, geez, like he said, like, what will, like, these are all young guys. I don't even recognize the game anymore to the game that I played. And Oh, is there anything I can possibly say that can have an influence or be beneficial or am I just an old codger that's talking and are you going to listen uh, to me? And I said, look, you know exactly what it is, Willie. Uh, you've lived it. And all you have to do is talk about what it, what, it, what it meant for you. And I can tell you that before the first test in, in Brisbane in 2001, he handed out the jerseys there wasn't a sound in the room and he just spoke about what it meant for him and what playing for the Lions meant for him and what the friendship of the people who had worn the jersey with him, what what they meant to him um, all those years later and what they still meant to him. And like, it didn't get to the point of going where you you know you lost your head inside in the, in the team room it, it wasn't like that this was a quiet reflection but had real emotion in it but it was a high level of control in the emotion I, I have to put that down as one of the highlights of my career was sitting in that room and the test afterwards was fantastic but actually that was a moment in time that was pretty extraordinary Rugby legend Keith Wood from off the ball no, look, I, I understand your point. This listener says behind the decision, though, is great consideration. Why um, have we become so short-sighted? You should be giving a more balanced um, view. I want to hear other people um, and not just those working or who are guests working within the um, the industry or the hospitality sector. Brian, though, is on the line. Um, Brian, you are in Monaghan. What's your reaction? It's complete bewilderment now at this stage. See, I'm in a unique position at my pub is five minutes' drive from a pub in Northern Ireland that is open fully indoors. So we couldn't open outdoors because everyone's drinking indoors in the north. And Michelle O'Neill was in the TV yesterday and said that 
in a couple of weeks' time, everything's opening up fully in Northern Ireland. And still, we are where we are. You know, it just there's no uh, creativity or imagination within the Irish government to get us open. Like, COVID is a thing that's going to be here. It's going to be with us. And we have to learn to live with this. And it's a Delta variant now, but what variant is it going to be in a few months' time? You know, we have to get on with it. And like to, I put in an order for kegs, and my kegs arrived this morning, all my deliveries arrived this morning, because I had to prepare for opening on the 5th. No, I'm not opening on the 5th. So everything has to go back. They can go back. And, you know, we publicans here, and like, we thought we would have got open for the summer. And my fear is now that we won't get open this year. I can't see it. And my gut tells me that we won't. Like, the government at some stage is going, if Michal Martin had come out today and said, listen, folks, you know, the numbers are not good. The modelling is not good. And who's to say that the modelling is right as far as I go? The modelling is not good. But as a society, I think we should take a chance in this and see how we go. And we'll, we'll open everything up and we'll review it again in four or five weeks. And if it starts to go wrong, well and good, but I don't think people would have held it against the government for trying it, because we're going to have to try it okay. sometime. Well, what about and some of the, the no messages, kind of yeah, Brian, that I, I mentioned there a few moments ago, the messages from people who were, you know, citing what happened at Christmas, um, talking about the fact that there is a postponement for two weeks to kind of allow for a decision based around this vaccine bonus, and you know, do, 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 what do you say to people that are very supportive of the decision today? Yeah, but you see, you're going to people both sides of the fence, but when you are sitting there with a wife and four kids and you're closed and been open 16 days from last March and you've bills coming through the door and they can talk to CRSS all day like, but it doesn't cover my bills. And when it comes to Christmas and you're scripting and saving to try and get a few pounds together, get Christmas presents and all the rest, you know, and you're watching your business go down the tube and you're looking at businesses across, you know, three miles over the road that are booming and you're sitting up closed you know, it's a hard, hard pill to swallow. And when this notion of opening up just for vaccinated people, there's no way I'm standing at my door and asking customers are they vaccinated or not. Yeah. They're not legally entitled to do that. It's none of my business. Absolutely none of my yeah, business. No, it's, it's... And then my kids can't walk in the public in my own pub because they're not vaccinated. Well, I think and actually I saw Stephen Donnelly no. talking today yeah. maybe that the, the, that the um, uh, people working in the hospitality sector won't have to be vaccinated. But look, certainly it is going to present a lot of difficulties and a lot of questions around that. Brian, we'll give you the last word on this today and thank you for joining us here on the programme. Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime Live. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. So today we have to deal with whether or not it is true that goldfish have a three-second memory. Shane, kick us off. Evening, Anton. Yeah, this is, is there a more maligned animal uh, than, a, than a goldfish? Like, they get such a bad name, I think. It's like everyone you talk to about goldfish is like, oh, yeah, they have a three-second memory. Some people might say, they, oh, no, they have a two-second memory. It's a 10-second memory. But either way, we all have our opinions. Well, in one way, you'd hope they have a three-second memory because it's the only way that you can alleviate the sense of guilt for putting them in such a tiny environment. We have to believe that every time they go around, they go, ooh, this is new. It's interesting, Anton, because that's actually one of the, the the theories as to why we say these things and what the origin of this theory that goldfish only have such a short memory because of this guilt. And maybe it's ignorance as well about fish intelligence in general. We kind of think of goldfish specifically as quite a stupid animal because of this uh, lack of memory or so-called lack of memory. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. But, Anton, we're going to reveal tonight that goldfish are actually quite intelligent. Stop so, the lights. 
I know, I know. This is a breaking news now this evening. So uh, pull in the car if you're if you're. This driving. is stunning on many levels because I think there is a general assumption that, with the possible exception of octopuses or octopi, depending on how you look at it, all fish are thick. <laughs> exactly. Like we, we always we know that dolphins are, are quite smart and chimpanzees are quite smart, but neither of them are fish, though. Yeah, I know, but they, they get a terrible name, goldfish. A terrible name. But there's a couple of uh, studies that I've been looking into, Anton, that will absolutely prove that goldfish are actually quite intelligent. So, um, they're, like, they're good problem solvers. They can escape nets, navigate mazes, and importantly, for what we're talking about this evening, they can even remember how to repeat these tasks weeks and even months later. So, uh, they can also recognise members of, uh, you know, their owners apparently after long periods of separation as well, which is something you'd associate with dogs or or cats, but. There's a wealth of anecdotal evidence to say this. So certainly a more uh, a more intelligent uh, fish than, than we previously would have thought, Anton. How do you know if a goldfish recognizes you? <laughs> this is the thing. Like, it's essentially the complex behaviors recognized by owners. So owners suggest, now it's very anecdotal uh, when you think about it. They observe behaviors in their pets when inter- interacting with them in the, in, the, uh, in the tank. And they claim that they can recognize them apart as well from other people. Now, I guess the more the more crucial evidence in terms of their intelligence would be getting them to do relatively relatively complex tasks, so swimming through mazes, pushing a ball into a net, because that only shows that not only have they the ability to recall information, uh, but also the capacity for more complex cognition and, and processing as well. Uh, so, but steady now, let, let's not conflate two things. There is a difference between complex cognition and long term retention. So how long, if you teach it to push a ball in a, in a net, how long will it retain the capacity to so do, Shane? Well, this is the thing. There's, there's been a couple of experiments to show this, Anton. So I, I, there was a 15-year-old kid, I think it was in a school in New Zealand years ago. He debunked this theory that goldfish mightn't remember longer, certainly than a few seconds. He would feed his pet goldfish, put a p- red piece of Lego in the fish tank, sprinkle food around the re- Lego block. Uh, the fish, of course, at first seemed a bit scared of the block. A couple of weeks later, though, they learned that that red block meant food was coming. So he stopped using the Lego piece for one week, then reintroduced the block and the fish swam straight towards it. In anticipation of food, so a Pavlovian that, fish. I know. That, well, this certainly ruled out the fact that there was it was a you know a three second memory that was at least a couple of weeks. So it's quite an elegant uh, training. There was even a study done in two thousand and three, Anton, in, in University of Plymouth. They were trained to push a lever to earn a food reward, and that lever was fixed then to work only for one hour a day. And the goldfish learned to activate it at the correct time, didn't bother with it the rest of the day. So I don't know, we're, we're moving towards a, an era here where we think the goldfish are perhaps smarter than we let on. Are you ever curious about how universities work in that kind of context? That a bunch of people sitting around the University of Plymouth, went, you know what we haven't done in a while, lads? Let's do a lever test on goldfish and that they have the money to go and do it. What a game. <laughs> My favorite- my favorite part of this research was that there's a guy called Colin Brown. He's an expert in fish cognition at the university in Australia. So that's apparently a real job. Um, so look, it, it's one of these things you wonder, do universities have the time and money? The answer is absolutely. They clearly seem to have. So what then for all of the goldfish owners who are listening to this, who are now racked with guilt, thinking that their fish lived in happy oblivion and knowing now that it is bored out of its little tiny golden mind? You see, this is the thing. Properly looked after goldfish can actually live for around 20 years. So uh, when you put your goldfish in those little tanks and they die off, die off after a couple of years, really, you should feel guilty because they should not be living uh, for such a short period of time. And yeah, exactly. Ignoring the fact that they're such a smart animal and have longer memories than we previously thought uh, is really, really going to bring back this guilt. So owners might want to consider getting larger tanks, enrichment objects in these tanks. Companion fish as well, Anton, is important. We all want friends. Uh, and you know, playing games with them, teaching them tricks. So, after all, they, goldfish might actually remember these experiences for years to come, it turns out. From the hard shoulder. 
On Sunday, Hidden Histories highlighted one of the biggest scandals in Victorian politics. The story of Edward de Cobain. Here's Gavin Riley and Donald Fallon. So Wilde and Turing have become sort of liberal icons, but maybe the reason why we don't hear very much about our protagonist today is that he could never be considered to be a liberal icon because in his own time, he was anything but. Absolutely. And synonymous with with institutions that are historically thought of as being deeply hostile to homosexuality. So Edward the Cobain is the son of a firebrand reverend born in 1840, becomes the Grand Master of the Orange Order in Belfast, not an organisation famous for their you know, tolerant approach no. uh, to others. And he builds a career as an Irish Conservative MP uh, in Westminster. But he does it not by kind of building bridges uh, and trying to create a more tolerant Ulster, but by exploiting differences that exist there. He's a Protestant parliamentarian mm. for a Protestant people. The worst kind of MP at literally the worst kind of moment. You know, Britain is a tinderbox. The Home Rule Bill is there on the table, Gladstone's 1886 Home Rule Bill. And one historian has has described the Cobain brilliantly as developing a reputation for being something of an orangist bulldog. I mean, that's a brilliant, brilliant description. But the view of this guy, the Cobain, uh, and those around him, was you know the same as that which would emerge later on in the crisis uh, in the revolutionary period, you know, the days of Carson. He basically believed home rule is Rome rule. Mighty industrial Belfast will never bow to your popish parliament on College Green. You know, financially crippled Dublin, and Belfast is every bit as British as the London Parliament. Uh, he said. So you mentioned uh, Home Rule in the 1880s is the time when all of that kicks off, and you have the first of many aborted attempts to try and have devolved uh, rule again in Dublin. Um, the Cobain's fingerprints are all over a series of riots that there are in Belfast around that time. And there's one instance in which he even tries to turn a crowd against the police. Which is extraordinary stuff. I mean, it brings to mind kind of populist politics in in, in our own times. Riots erupt in Belfast in 1886. Uh, People are very frightened at the prospect of home rule happening, the rise of the Irish Parliamentary uh, Party as they see it. Mm. And these riots kick off in the shipyards of Belfast. They discover that home rule isn't happening. So the riots turn into this very strange thing, which sounds like an oxymoron, but they become kind of uh, celebration riots. You know, they're, they're, what they feel <laughs> like, like a post Stanley Cup yeah, riot abs- in America. And, that and kind rubbing of thing. the nose of, of your of your neighbours in it. You know, you're not getting home rule, haha, and, and and they go on to riot. But the Cobain doesn't condemn the rioters in Belfast. He condemns the Royal Irish Constabulary who were sent in to to stop the riots. And most of the men they bring in are from other parts of the island of Ireland. So they're big, burly Catholic policemen. Mm. And, you know, he plays the sectarian card. You know, he tells people in the streets of Belfast that, you know, these are being brought in to suppress our rights. He slanders the police. It's entirely sectarian. He pours petrol uh, on the fire. And when there's later an inquiry into the Belfast riots, they, they, they finger this guy for the blame and say... Newspapers are so easily obtained that our workmen can read them in the evenings and become thoroughly posted in these matters. So he had, you know, put it into the heads of working class Belfast Protestants Mm. that the police were up against them. But obviously you don't do this sort of thing. You're not able to turn uh, the people against the police unless you are highly popular. And he himself had massive support from Belfast workers, or or at least (laughs) if not all the Belfast workers, the ones he thought of as the right kind to try and and cultivate. He's the MP for Belfast East, you know, which is the centre of kind of working class Protestant uh, Belfast. And he supports kind of trade unionism and workers' rights in the city, providing they're the right kind of workers. So the union 
he backs is called the Belfast Orange and Protestant Working Men's Association. So <laughs> yeah. it does exactly. He's not been very coy about who he's trying to cultivate there, is he? It does exactly what it says in the tin. You know, it's not exactly influenced by the the gospel of Karl Marx. Workers of all countries unite. It's much more King William of Orange, and it's about protecting Protestant jobs for Protestant workers. So there's rarely been an, an MP mm. who was so gung ho about his convictions. I mean, this guy did everything short of wearing an orange order sash into Parliament to mm. say what he was, and I think more importantly to say, you know, what he what he wasn't. And there were a whole host of people on the other side of Parliament in, in Westminster who hated this guy. You know, the Parnellites, they were looking for home rule yeah. uh, for Ireland, but also conservatives. I think there's nothing conservatives hate more. You know, they regarded themselves as, you know, above that kind of politics. Yeah. Significant landowners, respectful men up against, you know, the Fenians across the We don't the do way. this kind of rabble rousing. We don't do this kind of rabble rousing. So that's the world of politics that, that could be mixed in and engaged with. Uh, Protestant jobs for Protestant workers. Uh, I, I'd love if people could text in 53106 and decide what a, a Protestant job is. Is like <laughs> someone who's trying to build a machine that stops transubstantiation. I don't know. Um, despite all of what you've been saying, there is still shock then when the story does break of the Cobain being sought by the police, the same police that he tried to turn the mobs against, on account of homosexuality. Even the most hostile of opponents, you know, the, the most firebrand nationalists were taken by surprise. April 1891, a warrant is issued uh, by Richard Eaton, who's the, the resident magistrate of Belfast. And the Cobain is charged with the commission of unnatural offences uh, in Belfast. And I don't think he helps his case by immediately uh, doing a runner. You know, he, he fled <laughs> okay, yeah. via He's London. going to fight this one in the dark, you know. Yeah, via London to France, onwards to the United States, proclaiming in his, inno- his innocence, but saying, look, I can't get a fair trial. And he writes a letter to a fellow MP and says, when first elected for East Belfast, I stood as a working man's candidate, but publicly uh, avowing as my two principles to help extend the privileges of the working classes and to advance the temperance cause. My attitude in relation to both these questions gave moral umbrage, the first to a click, the latter to the present government. Another in other words, I'm innocent uh, and the rumour mail has been designed to bring down an MP. But you don't help that argument mm. uh, by running away. So the House of Commons, they order him to show up uh, and when he doesn't, he's expelled in February 1892. Yeah. It takes a lot to get yourself expelled from the British House of Commons. Yeah. He manages to do it. Uh, the rumour mail designed to bring down an MP but nobody has to leak some videos of a minister's <laughs> uh, private quarters in order to do it. Um, he goes on the run, uh, as you've mentioned. Uh, he completely flees despite maintaining his innocence. He shows up in Brooklyn. It's amazing. He pops up in Brooklyn, New York and uh, the Illustrated American, they, they write about this. They say, Edward de Cobain, who fled from England to avoid, tr- avoid trial on the charges of immoral practices and was expelled from Parliament, has turned up in Brooklyn where he was found conducting religious revival services. <laughs> so, so what else would he be doing? banging the Bible, yeah. you know. Uh, his identity was not suspected at first and he won favour by his elegance. He says he's innocent and tries to explain his failure to return and stand trial by saying the police have arranged to convict him mm. on false evidence. And when he eventually does go back to Belfast in February 1893, mm. unsurprisingly, he's immediately yeah. arrested. Terrific stuff there from author and historian Donald Fallon from On the Record with Gavin Riley. And of course, you can tune into Gavin every Sunday morning from 11 till 1. OK, I'm going to leave you with now some sound advice from comedian, novelist and podcaster Jason Byrne from Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. Have a great weekend. And do you have a plan? I've always wanted to ask you when you go out on stage or do you mm. just go with the flow? No. I've definitely been at gigs where like you've just started talking to two people in the front and then it just becomes about them and you're like sweating mm. getting off the stage. How did you need more exercise? Well, oh, well, yeah. Well, well, that's what, yeah, John Bishop, because he's a great mate of mine, he'll often give out to me and go, why don't you just sit in a stool and just tell your stories? Why do you put yourself under so much pressure? Because I, I do a gig that I'd like to see. 
Do you know what I mean? I've often gone to comics and went, there's no effort going into that. Will you come on and do a bit more? So what I do is I have all my pre-written material, which would be the whole show. Do you know what I mean? If I didn't have to, I don't have to talk to the audience. I can go through all the pre-written stuff. But then my brain, what I do is, and it's something else, you know, that is great in life that I've learned through different therapy is let just let go. And I, when I let go on stage, my brain takes over and it goes, no, I'm going to talk to this fellow over here now. And then I just talk to someone and I come up with this. All I need is a little few bits of information and I can just start writing this whole new bit of material in my head straight right, right in front of everybody. And then, but at the same time, at the other thing, all the pre-written stuff is waiting to be used as well. So now I'm trying to weave improv in with the pre-written stuff and that's the actual show. So that's what you're seeing. But what, what I mean? a pace, you know, for not only that to be happening on stage mm. for your brain, but then you're packing your bag and you're on to the next place and the next yeah. place and the next place and the next place. And then you're handling the juggling of marital breakdown, your kids yeah. getting older, your dad getting sick. So yeah. no wonder you reached a point where it was no more for, for a little while or was it forced by the pandemic, the break? Well, I, it was it was both things because it was before the pandemic that I thought, no, I have to slow down and I have to start... Because I used to always run a lot. That used to be my thing. Do you know what I mean? Because every and I, I love like it's got like everybody. You just you just find your own exercise. That's what you do. Do you know what I mean? No matter what it is. Yeah, moving walking, your body, running anything. Yeah. I don't think we talk about that enough. I think people are get really. Am I supposed to be in CrossFit? Am I supposed to be weightlifting? Am I supposed to be running? And should I be running the marathon? And they forget mm. that if you just stick the runners on and go for a fifteen-minute walk, start mm. there. Just get out, whatever it is, or dance, turn up the radio, whatever yeah, it, it is. Doesn't matter how long you do it for, as long as you do something. And 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 it's also it's not to give yourself such a hard time because I I re- I can't even remember where the hell I read. I've read so many different bits, but um, we give ourselves such a hard time, like you know, going I like I have to go to the yoga, I have to lose the weight, I have to do the running, I have to do the like. And what you're doing there, a lot. Of what I read was that you are basically painting over, let's say, a rusty beam with all these things, and the rust is still underneath. Mm. So all it does is it just forces its way back through again. Yeah. So I found I got a great trick, and actually on the Mindful Festival, John Kavanagh is in the coach Kavanagh, and he said he said, um, you know, the the whole dieting thing is just too much, too much pressure on everybody, and he's like, he's like, you know, he's it. Conor McGregor's coach. He's Conor McGregor's coach, but he's also a low coach to. Hundreds of other people, and he said that you should just do uh, do it every twenty four hours. That's the easiest way to deal with it. So basically, you get up in the morning, you go right. I'm not going to eat any chocolate or have any wine today. That's grand. And then the next day, you go. I might actually have loads of chocolate and loads of wine. You just keep doing it that way. But what you'll find is that if you do it that day, then you know you don't have to yeah. go all the way along. Like Alan Watts, this other guy I was talking to earlier outside, but Alan Watts, he's a great fella. He says. He was saying that whenever we try and set ourselves goals, like I'm going to give up drink for a year. And he is, again, he's talking in the 50s. He goes, oh, the devil loves that, he says. The devil loves that. The devil sits on your shoulder and goes, what are you going to do? You go, I'm going to give up drink for a year. Oh, brilliant, because you're never going to do that. Excellent. Keep that plan. So the other, the plan is just to do it day by day with everything. Exercise, you know, your food, diets, everything. And then you'll find that you'll just get into a routine. Yeah. That's what I do. I don't put myself under loads of pressure. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Drivers of Ireland, it's now or never. When you want the great value cover that only comes with super value car insurance, giving you a 10% online discount and shopping vouchers with your policy. That's a great deal for the cover you need anyway. All it takes is one big click or call. 
Just visit supervalue.ie slash insurance or call 0818 0101101 and our SuperValue team will save the day. So, give us a spin. Terms and conditions apply. Vouchers include two 10 euro or 40 euro spend. This car insurance is underwritten by AXA Insurance DAC. SuperValue Financial Services DAC, trading as SuperValue Insurance, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.